Hi and welcome to the Real World Behavioural Science Podcast where we look at how behavioural and social sciences are being used in the real world to help change the public's health for good. Uh, today's a great example of uh, using the real world approach because we've got two marketing and PR specialists with us. Uh, so it should be a really interesting show with these two uh, fascinating people with long and illustrious careers. Uh, our guests so far have been really good. And I think you can see that we've got a flurry of, uh, of, of new shows coming out over the last few weeks, including uh, some specials with Professor Susan Mickey and Nizreen Alwan. Uh, we had last month Ivo Vlaev which is a really interesting show. Um, and we've got a load more of really interesting guests coming up as well. So look forward to that. Just a quick reminder that we're doing this on behalf of the Behavioural Science and Public Health Network, where you get the chance to meet informally with people from academia, industry and public health, um, which one of the benefits of joining is actually coming up. And so I'm going to tell you about our annual conference, which is taking place uh, between the 9th and 11th of February 2021. And the theme is reflecting on public health and behavioural science responses to COVID-19. Um, you can find details on the BSPHM website, but this time is an especially great time to join because the event is actually free for members. £10 for students who are not members and £25 for people who are working but not members. But crucially, this comes with a year's free membership. So I'm calling this out because you're an informed audience, but there's some behavioural economics here going on in the form of um, a decoy effect because this is actually the fee you'd normally pay for membership for the year anyway. So the benefit is that the CPD for you and it's something that your, your employer can pay for because uh, you get your free membership within the, the price of your ticket. Uh, and if they support CPD, this is pretty cheap CPD at £25. So there's no good excuse not to join. Head to their website now and join up. Now over to the show. Hi everyone and welcome to today's show. I'm really excited today to be joined by not one but two amazing guests. Uh, both are from the Goldman Sachs 10,000 Small Businesses course which is based at Oxford University Said School of Business. Andrew is the tutor on the course and Chloe is the student on the course like me. Uh, so now we are coming on to their justifiably lengthy introductions and I'm going into a lengthy introduction because I want to sort of highlight the fact that we've gone to, to different industries with this show to make sure Sure that we bring together different voices and understand the the diversity, the importance of diversity uh, in understanding how to help people change their behaviour. Chloe Francis is one of only four female founders in the PR industry bible PR Week Top 150 Agencies. She's pushed an authentic and influential purpose agenda through every aspect of the company that she's built. She has more than 22 years experience working with a vast and varied range of social impact led philanthropic and non-governmental organizations and foundations, as well as some of the best known brands in the world. After being director at Freud's in the early years, as well as head of creative relationships at Amnesty International for seven years, she recognised that NGOs alone could not take on the responsibility of the numerous crises facing humanity and the planet. She spent a number of years consulting on corporate and social responsibility programs for consumer and hospitality brands, crafting implementation strategies for the company's improvement in key areas of sourcing, sustainability, environmental impact, community engagement and charity support. Chloe now runs an award-winning social impact PR organisation called Francis, specialising in building reputation, audience, legacy, engagement and authenticity for businesses and individuals that believe in engagement that leads to social change. Francis have worked with brands including Bentley, Formula E, Pearson, Britvic, the Design Museum, as well as many high-profile individuals like Idris Elba, Charlize Theron and Orlando Bloom. They've also worked with NGOs including coalitions such as Arctic Base Camp and the With Syria campaign and organisations including Help Refugees, The Big Issue and the Royal British Legion. And now over to Andrew Thomas, who is an experienced commercial marketer with significant digital expertise. After spending five years as a captain in the army, he shifted gears to become a strategic advisor, business coach and mentor, and he's worked with companies from startups to conglomerates. He's been working over the past 30 years for marketing agencies such as BMP, DDB, McCann Ericsson and ECI Ventures, which was successfully sold to the publicly traded Canadian company Caboose. 
At the end of 2008, Andrew established himself as a digital transformation coach with the aim of helping individuals and organizations thrive in the digital economy. As a growth expert on the Goldman Sachs 10,000 Small Businesses Program run by the University of Oxford Said School of Business, he coaches entrepreneurs planning for high growth. As a trainer for the Google Digital Academy, he facilitates Google's Brand Solutions Masterclass to enable clients to shape their brand and businesses with a consumer-centric and digital-first mindset. Andrew has a postgraduate diploma in executive coaching and leadership mentoring, is a fellow of the Institute of Leadership and Management and fellow of the Royal Society for the Encouragement of Arts, Manufacturers and Commerce. Wow, I know there are two of you, but um, this is a, and this is a really long intro, but a testament to the reason that I wanted to get you both on the show. Uh, so welcome both of you to the Real World Behavioural Science Show. Thanks. Stu, it's a pleasure. Good morning. Great stuff. Um, so why don't we get started with my first question? We just heard quite a lot about your, um, your you know, in, in your introductions about the route to where you got today. But could you fill in the blanks for us? Just give us an overview of how your, your journey to where you are today. Andrew, let's start with you. Yeah, where I am today, I suppose where I am today is working with lots of people, um, help, trying to help them solve their problems to engage more effectively um, with customers, whether they are consumers or businesses, and, and, and I suppose help them grow their businesses. But it goes right back, I suppose I started as a, started as a soldier, as a communicator, worked in advertising, right through, I suppose, the the glow, end of the glorious ages of advertising, those great ads of the 70s and the 80s, um, where creatives really seem to be able to tap into the mood and what people are looking for. We perhaps had perhaps still a degree of scarcity and still the power of the television medium to create great amounts of exposure to great ideas that drove people to buy um, I think we're in a different place now. This this thing called the internet's come along, that's uh, increased a huge amount of complexity, and I suppose help people try to navigate their way through this digital complexity and help them transform their businesses so they can still be successful. And variety is key. Fun, P- helping people solve those problems. Excellent. And and Chloe, what about you? How did you get to where you are today? By bus. <laughs> I'm joking. Um, I um, I was I was driven by a passion for activism from a very young age, um, and part of that was about um, shifting narrative and trying to um, get people to take action as an activist. Um, but along uh, along the line, part of that became a uh, a functional um ability to look at what um similar to andrew problem solving could do for the world and how i could work with activism through communication and into social impact and so the agency that i now have works with social impact and purpose and looking at how brands, individuals, and NGOs can work through campaigns to um, to real world change. So behavioral change, um, attitudinal change, and using all the tools that we have now, but also um, some of the science behind it. Great. Okay. And, and so on a day-to-day, what does your role look like, Chloe? Um, it's so varied. Uh, we are very... Um, privileged to have some great clients who are now through the time that we've seen so much change the past sort of five ten years with um, social media and uh, other forms of communication um, we've come to a point where lots of brands and individuals are openly questioning and looking for solutions in how they communicate their values and so um, it can as I say, it's very varied, but a lot of it is to do with um, problem solving and looking at uh, kind of the underbelly of um, of our clients and really trying to figure out how they navigate the the sort of I guess the new world that we we live in with um, with the transparency and the ability to to be so transparent um, and the need for transparency that we that we have now. Yeah, great. Okay. And Andrew, what about you on a day to day? And I mean, could you give us a bit bit before COVID and what it's like now since since that's all kicked off? 
Wow, yeah, that it, it has. I suppose um, as someone who has a kind of portfolio of things, every day could be different. But it would be fair to say that if we go back pre-COVID, I would spend far more time in front of people face-to-face, -face, running workshops, trying to help them understand what their value proposition might be, uh, particularly where they're looking to grow their business, try to understand their customers, the, the decision-making journeys that they take, um, and the signals that they go get, give off through whatever channel, and then trying to help them understand what sorts of messages might build intent, might encourage them to move to a point where that might trigger a, a decision, uh, and that generally was one of financial gains. So certainly pre-COVID, we would do that a lot of that work face-to-face. -face. Now, increasingly, it's working remotely. It's using synchronous collaboration tools online to, to do that. The principles remain the same, but it, it can be quite hard. I suppose data is playing an increasingly important role now in trying to understand and decode why people are doing things and what people are looking for. So that's really the shift. And so again, it is about, these are all problems. Some may be champagne problems in terms of trying to encourage great growth, some less so. Mm -hmm. Great. Okay. Awesome. And this is one of the reasons that I wanted to do this show with you both. And I, I mentioned at the top of the show, uh, really why, but it's, it's not something that, that we're used to on the behavioral science, um, the real world behavioral science show, because normally we're talking about someone's research or like in the industry that they work in where they're deliberately applying the, a specific theory or whatever this is actually a much more real world focused uh, activity that you're taking part in both from a, an, an activism perspective and um, understanding um, things like identity and how people behave in relation to their identity which you want to come to um, but also marketers have been doing behavioral science or behavior change for for decades and um they just didn't call it all all of the same the same names so i'm interested in getting into that um a little bit more um and i suppose we could start by asking how marketing and marketers influence behavior in the first place and i'm interested in going back to the beginning of your career andrew and seeing um what what was it like then i mean it's not quite mad men days i'm not i'm not i don't want to age you here um but uh, it's not quite mad men days is it but how how has marketing and marketers influenced behavior over the over the course of your career so far? Well, I suppose if, if you boiled it all down, it is it, it's one word, really, Stu. It's persuasion. You know, if you think, and you know the, the the stages of Mad Men and the creation of the the big ad agencies, particularly in Madison Avenue in New York, and certainly. In, in Britain as well, and we talk about Ogilvy, and we talk then into 70s and Saatchi and Saatchi, you know, they were the great persuaders. Mm. You know, their role was to you leverage creativity and ideas and storytelling, which is kind of in vogue now. But if we think about many of the great commercial directors um, from those times are the storytellers of today. Ridley Scott, his brother Tony Scott, um, you know, there's two such examples. So we were always looking to persuade, and therefore um, you're looking to tap into perhaps many of the of the of the of the biases that we now describe that that, that are prevalent in behavioral economics. So whether that is, you know, authority bias, the the role of the um, the role of the uh, ambassador, I suppose, in, in terms of, of advertising or social pre for the popularity. You go back to, I'd like to teach the world to sing and, and Coca-Cola in the early 70s. That was all about social proof before the term social proof was ever used. Mm -hmm. So I think we were doing things um, that perhaps hadn't been codified or classified as they have been now, but it goes right back. We could go even further back than the Mad Men days. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, and then, Chloe, from your perspective, you know, what um, what's the difference between PR and marketing, for one thing? Because they are they are slightly different. Um, and they are different, how, yeah. how do you define the difference and how have you merged them, I suppose? Because I know you're across both, really. Um, it's. I think it's an interesting question. I think it's an evolution. Um not that it not that one gets left behind because obviously we see um 
transition through uh, communication. But but certainly the the advertising industry classically tells you what to do, gives you aspirational examples mm-hmm. and role models to work towards. PR is um, um, if if advertising is persuasion. PR is more the nudge, right, okay. um, and the and the friendly voice that will give you um, a a guidance and a this is what I did, so I suggest you do the same because mm-hmm. this was the outcome. Um, so less uh, telling you to, but um, but sharing information that can take you on the similar journey. And I think through that we also come to to social media and, and the more um, kind of direct approach, which is um, don't do this, do this. I've done it. And this is the way. So I think, I think we've seen all of them and their roles in communication and, and in marketing, um, mm-hmm. and how they lead to um, to awareness and through awareness to change um, or, or purchasing, perhaps. Um, mm-hmm. But I think there is a there's a psychology to each part of that journey, and the psychology that sits behind each of them is is that persuasive nature um but they function very well together well i was going to say that because obviously i was thinking when you were talking about the halo effect of of you know um using celebrities with good good moral fiber to sell your products or whatever you know whatever you're using that then comes into part of their marketing strategy and they use them in marketing campaigns so they obviously cross over um does does pr ever sit completely distinct from marketing or is it is it always a, a to do with marketing the, the, the dark arts of pr well, yeah really <laughs> maybe crisis management this was when the when the proverbial hits the fan i suppose um there are specialisms aren't there chloe within this the world of public relations or shall we say lobbying uh, or some of those when we you know we're joking about the dark arts there clearly are dark arts um there are. I think it's also a, a degree of, and I think this comes into um, the insurance policy versus the, it's a sort of reactive and proactive approaches to, to both. There's there's one part which is making sure that you are protected and the other part which is delivering fame and sort of driving awareness. Um, can you, can but you unpack both that of, a little bit for us, Chloe? What, what's the difference between those? I don't, can you give an example of those? So I think... Um, if we look at, uh, I mean, I think now we see a lot around, and, and I guess because we work in the space of purpose and purpose PR and influential purpose and what that might mean, mm. um, there's also the, um, I suppose, how best to put it? I, if you look at where CSR was previously, so corporate social responsibility was something that was a, a great insurance policy that sat with businesses within businesses that spoke a lot to um, internal dialogue and how how things were protected you know big big brands wanting to ensure that they weren't caught out and so there were lots of things that they put in place which were just there to to ensure that they didn't get caught out and, and what, the, what does the that mean though insurance policies that didn't Get caught out with what? Sorry. So so let's say it might be um, perhaps oil companies and what they might do for the, the land around where they are drilling oil um, right. and making sure that they're doing enough to keep people happy and not get into trouble for the work that they're doing. Right. Whereas then you take it to another level and you actually proactively go out and help communities and you might go beyond the necessary insurance policy that is CSR and that's keeping people happy enough and you might take it beyond that and that takes you into questioning your values your purpose and then driving those forward in order to to push those into part of your communication strategy also and being able to herald those as good good deeds and I think that that's a shift that's come only more recently through the need for transparency because of social media and because of communications, because perhaps advertising might have sat in a place where they just told the good story. Whereas now that the bonnet can be lifted on so many things because of social media, but also because of access to information through the internet, now looking at different ways that you can not only safeguard, but also how do you find positive messages in things? How do you change behavior within your, company within your culture yeah. that you can then go out and and 
push forward as part of your own brand narrative. So, so from a sim- simplistic perspective, it sort of evolved through the transparency that's available from doing things to look good, if that's not too cynical a way of doing it, so to sort of showcase the Or not to look bad. Or not to look bad, another way of putting it. Yeah. To, to genuinely connecting with something that feels authentic. Is that... I think it has to feel authentic. And I think that's part of the, the bridge that we're all trying to cross and certainly quite trying to cross, cross with our clients, mm. looking at how every every company is set up with with um objectives and and a purpose of some kind that may be financial in terms of where they're they're trying to get to but there will be a culture that's built around that that allows it to be successful and take people on journey with it and then when you start unpacking that and you look at what those elements are and you start to really prioritize those elements they come out of the hr department and they come into the marketing department and i think that's a really important transition that we've seen happen more and more recently yeah andrew did you have anything to add on that um i i think i would add what i would add to what chloe is just saying is that certainly the transparency of um social media uh i think uh, increasingly the importance through COVID is to understand where companies are creating social value, not only commercial value for themselves. Uh, And, um, you know, I think we are looking at this more and more. We are conscious that maybe the the model of capitalism is imperfect. It doesn't suit everyone's needs. Uh, It doesn't create universal wealth. And I think that we're looking now at people, at companies that, you know, do consider everybody's needs and therefore, you know, whether it's B Corp, purpose, social value is very, very important. And, um, you know, we are less accepting um, of authority in its truest sense and prepared to challenge. Uh, And I think that's an interesting point is that we need to look at certain industries. And the obvious one was um, oil and gas. Um, uh, allied to that was automotive, arguably, and fumes. Mm. But you can also look at fashion. Fashion is an industry that is really struggling because of supposed greenwashing and the constant production of products that don't get sold will go to landfill. What about all the clothes that have not been sold for the spring summer season this year? And the concept of greenwashing is 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 becoming more common in, in in terms of its use and in language. And can you just explain um, what greenwashing is for just people who don't well, know? Well, greenwashing is effectively uh, adopting a purpose uh, element to your communications because you think your target market will find it more engaging and right. will um, will value more as a result of it. But you're not really committed. To that from a pure purpose perspective i think i've got that right chloe haven't i you did indeed yeah so, so this is really what you were talking about chloe is is the difference between genuinely connecting with an issue rather than csr sort of looking good or not looking bad i mean i think there's a role for csr i think corporate social responsibility is something that you know now we hear so much about esg and um that i think that there is a Sorry, what's there's a need for I have to... environmental social governance, oh, but right, okay. I think there's cool. a there's a um, there's a part to to be played by businesses in keep you know I've I've I worked for an NGO for for seven and a half years and um, I certainly came out feeling that they weren't the, the sole solution. They were most NGOs set up to put themselves out of business um, mm-hmm. with, you know, genuinely, authentically and, and positively put themselves out of business. Um, whereas brands uh, and corporates need to keep their consumers alive and healthy and, and buying stuff and keep the economy going. So there's, there's a, a dedicated interest there. And I think that um, whilst part of their job is to make sure that they have got the every insurance policy they can they can have so that people keep doing that the the tide turning into where we find ourselves now and 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 covid really being a great um amplifier of that or microscope of that yeah. whichever <laughs> making it bigger yes. more important um has has i think shown a lot of businesses that 
if if people have a reduced income or or reduced need that they will purchase with purpose that they will make decisions based on things that are not traditional uh purchasing merits if you like um and so it becomes more important in the direct communication and direct storytelling the narrative of the brand to to highlight these things that make mm. them that they're differentiators um and so give them those values that can be reflective of the values of their potential consumers. Um, so I think it's a really important thing. And the greenwashing part that Andrew speaks about is something that we've seen bandied about for, for, um, for some time where you have got brands talking about their recycled plastic, but still producing huge amounts of plastic, but not talking about that. And so yeah. the, the, the beauty, I suppose, in the transparency piece is that there's less and less greenwashing and there's more and more pressure, but there isn't the sort of, there aren't so many of the wagging fingers. If you say that you're on the journey, if you're going to go towards being yeah. better, you can acknowledge the fact that you're not there yet, but you're still on the journey. And I think it's all these goals that are being set like 20, 30 years ago, you know, looking at the sustainable development goals, looking at these different moments in time that are being set out so that brands can start their journey if they haven't already um and and there's no shame in that yeah and, and that brings to some something that i was going to talk about a bit later which um sort of seems apt to bring up now which is um identity and um how brands sort of feature in the role of shaping or helping to shape people's identity um because people obviously become enamored with specific brands i particularly am, am enamored with about four or five different brands and i i, I I'm very loyal. I, I, I probably shouldn't be. I probably shouldn't be more discerning. But how how do, how much does identity come into that? Particularly from a, a using. And I know you use a lot of celebrities. Um, I say use. I know you work with a lot of celebrities, Chloe, um, to sort of you know help connect them to things that they're passionate about. So how does that how, how does that feature in this? You know, using um, different attributes or people to to tap into people's identities. I think what we've seen. Um, what we've seen with the rise of the internet is um, the slow deterioration or at some points rapid deterioration of um, mainstream media in the format that we knew it. Mm -hmm. So um, the, the, the newspapers that we got so much information from, the journalists we got so much information from um, are less present or have, um, or even online there's more kind of... Um, there's more of a kind of bun fight, I suppose, for the space and the attention and the attention span of those um, those audiences. Mm -hmm. And really, celebrities tap into a fan base. They tap into quite often. They'll tap into you know the main vein of youth culture or you know some specific area that a brand um, or cause or campaign is trying to reach. And so they become a vehicle for communication. Now, if you add to that. The, uh, the the deterioration of trust in um, formal um, constructs like politician uh, sort of political forums, politicians specifically, mm. the media as a whole. If you look at what's happened in America yeah, with the fake yeah. news kind of being driven, and even the internet. So it's a you know like where where you're getting your information from, whether it's from Facebook or, or other outlets that we we look at daily um for as sources of information so it really is kind of the pinnacle of pr in a sense and and what you know public relations was it's it's right back almost to its roots of of looking at influence and significant influence and not coming in at the end of a campaign and going you know now i can you know take this advert and make it famous with some some um coverage in a newspaper but actually how do you inject um immediate traction into something that you're trying to communicate and if you have someone who is authentically passionate about something as most talent are because they are people who have in the main seen dramatic change happen in their own lives so they believe that change is possible and they mm -hmm. are therefore passionately driven to drive change behavioral change or kind of um, different forms of awareness so they are an incredible channel for that um, and we certainly find with um, with 
a number of the talent that we work with, they may be polymaths and working across a number of different areas of, of their kind of of their talent, but they have very loyal followings of people who trust them and mm. trust is mm. is really the differentiator there. Um, sure. I think also there is a part of that which is something that we've seen more recently where you've got um, what were disruptor brands, um, you know, small startup uh, style brands coming in as challenger brands being kind of, you know, brands that were set out with with a clear purpose um, that might then challenge a mainstream washing up liquid, for example, and then being on a par with them because they're the market interest is such and those and quite often those brands really benefit significantly from somebody who has a profile adding their profile to a brand that might otherwise not be recognized and so it, it um i guess it kind of supercharges yeah. that awareness and ties in shorthand around the values of the talent to the values of the brand and so that shorthand is incredibly valuable because sandra yeah. i'm sure you would say around advertising you know a lot of those that storytelling and those narratives are condensed into something which is a shorthand that sparks things and that again goes into your behavioral changes nudges mm -hmm. and things that sit under our skin that we're we're not aware of because we have so much of it coming at us mm. all day every day yeah and it's interesting that you you, you know uh, it's that you phrase it that 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 way because immediately as you're talking i'm thinking of um these shorthands these shortcuts as heuristics that we use to just sort of immediately identify something with someone that we aspire to or equally you know for myself and trump for example we don't aspire to uh, immediately as he starts talking about something i'm disassociated from that thing but well this is where advertising folklore comes from you know um, clunk click every trip was the heuristic that would drive using seatbelts. Mm -hmm. um, so if you, you know, so the the slogan has always been that soundbite that, uh, and often that soundbite, hey Tosh, get a Toshiba, was invariably um, associated with a real or a manufactured celebrity, you know, and that yeah. that would reinforce um the the um expression the slogan the soundbite to become the norm the way in which we would do that and um you know and that is how you know the other thing that is really important and we talk going back to your original question around identity is that um people would would associate or build their identity their dna around what a celebrity did or an influencer now does but equally would do so around brands as you hinted at you know uh, i've had i don't know how many cars in my life but the number of brands that i would buy from is is quite limited you know i will never you know although i have you could argue I've seen advertising for Jaguar for years. I am infinitely exposed to Jaguar advertising. I will never buy a Jaguar for as long as I live because I will never in my own head be old enough to drive a Jaguar because Jaguars are for old people, not no, me. No offence to Jaguar drivers or Jaguar. Uh, nothing yes. at all. No, but I'll, it's I'll, all about, I'll take yeah. you. I'll well, you can it. take the Jaguar. But yeah. it's about, you see, it's about identity. It's, and it's a classic yeah. case of how... Um, and often we talk about, is it, there's a great story. I, I was coaching a management team uh, and there was a lady on this management team and, and we were talking about identity and we were talking about behavioral preferences. And she says, an interesting story. I bought, um, last winter, I bought a wonderful red coat. It was the plushest, most gorgeous red coat you, you you could ever imagine. And I've always wanted a red coat. Ever since I was a little girl, I always wanted my own red coat. And she said, do you know how many times I've worn it, Andrew? And I said, you've never worn it, have you? And she says, how did you know? I said, because you've always wanted that, but it wasn't you. Because if it was you, you'd have bought it much, much sooner. It doesn't conform to your identity of yourself. Mm -hmm. And she says, you're, you're absolutely right. It's a lovely coat, but I, it's not for me. 
So identity and brands and perception of oneself and the, and the celebrities or people that you identify with or congregate with are, you know, um, um, you know, are a huge part, very, very important. You know, very, very important. I find it really interesting, the Jaguar point specific, well, all of that, but the Jaguar point specifically there, because I think the old, the old sort of image of Jag, uh, you know, the XJs, the old, the old classic Jags was that of an older, older person driving, but they've sort of obviously gone a long way to investing in the EV market, the electric vehicle market um, to try and tap into a, I would imagine would be quite a lot younger uh, audience and with the conforming to the sizes of cars that they've offered like the the um, E-Pace and the F-Pace and stuff uh, and and also the F-Type actually, I mean this isn't a car show but I do like <laughs> Do you like us? But I just, it's interesting. Uh, I wonder how much of your views on that are based from, you know, the 80s and 90s. They are. They are. And it is an identity of myself, yeah. my position in the world, the part of the world I've come from. Uh, I, um, you know, and um, it was always, I, I see it in a different way. And it's because of where I've come from. It's my lens that I see that through. And all those people, people say, well, but F-Pace is amazing. I said, I'm sure it is, and I'm sure I'd love driving it. I don't want to have that sat on my driveway. Yeah, yeah. Because it's that doesn't, you know, that doesn't represent me. I've even, you know, and uh, I've had a number, we should take it offline because it's far <laughs> too interesting, but not relevant to it. There's no, I've had a number of brands, and I could argue from Aston Martin down, many of them I would identify with most some I would identify with, most I wouldn't. Yeah, interesting. Should I even keep yeah. them? Yeah, it's it's interesting because there's there's a um, there's a theory that's uh, a sociological theory that has been huge in my career. Like, I I became completely enamoured with it when I was at, um, doing my masters and, and starting my business. Um, and it, and it underpins everything we do at Busybodies, essentially. Um, but it's it's the most important um, public health theory you've never heard of, and that is is habitus, um, which is basically about you know the the environment that you find yourself in and the people, the social and physical environment you find yourself in, is what determines your tastes, preferences, and expectations. Um, and I think we really undervalue looking into exactly where our tastes and preferences are formed uh, and who forms them and how hard they are to sort of come out of. And from our perspective as a, as a sort of a behavior change or weight management specialist, we're always thinking about who are the people around you that are sort of keeping your habitus as it is and and they're, they're helping to form. And the important thing about habitus is that it reforms as well. So by staying in that environment, you are continually um, re, you know, reifying the the information that's sort of continuing to sort of form your uh, taste, uh, and expectations. Uh, absolutely, Stu. And one would argue, and this goes right back um, to brands and advertising and marketing and persuasion, mm the most difficult thing you can do, you can attempt to do from a persuasive and a communication standpoint is brand switching yeah. for those reasons that you would describe your own habitus. Introducing new brands, uh, introducing new products, yes, sure. But brand switching because, and again, I've worked, you know, in um, when I was at Bounty, and we were working, looking at working with young mums, and and, new, and when you're coming into the marketplace and you build your repertoire of brands, you know there are many um, sort of stories that talk about mums walking out, leaving um, their basket of shopping, their trolley of shopping, if their brand of detergent or nappies was out of stock on the shelf. They would, and it's the classic case of. There may be other options, but they're so wedded to mm. those choices. Now, whether that's wrapped up with your identity or your view in terms of, uh, um, you know, a mum or a parent or a, a driver or a fashionista, whatever that might be, is a case of I will buy this and you'll never see me. We are, you know, we are dichotomous. This, this, these, you know, we will do one thing, not the other. Well, well, and we're sort of tribal as well in a in a certain sense. Very tribal, yeah. And I wonder, it comes back to what Chloe was saying a moment ago um, about um, it might take a celebrity. For example, if, if, if you had, you were very fixed on a brand, but a celebrity, for example, that you really liked endorsed a different brand, that actually could be powerful enough for them to, you to sort of think, well, if they've endorsed that, then perhaps that's something that I should consider. But I think there's something very... Um 
something important to acknowledge here, which is that most people won't admit, and we've seen Harvard studies and all sorts, um, most people won't admit that they'll buy something because it's endorsed by a celebrity. Yeah. And yet they will go in and their behavior will show something different. There's, there's, there, isn't, um, there isn't an openness to to that it's a uh, it's a really interesting thing to mm. explore because it may because it it's part of that not not necessarily subliminal it's part of the the overall i guess it's back to andrew's point of the jaguar there's a you know you could present all the f types and uh, that you like but it still relates to something that's deep-seated and the same yeah. with celebrities you might turn around and go I'd never buy something that Idris Elba would tell me to buy and yet if you're confronted with a, a shelf that has lots of different options mm. your comfort zone will go towards the thing that you trust or that is associated with now we yeah. have lots of different things that trigger different emotional responses to brands you know and and you know different ways in which we I mean you know more more about this than me I'm sure but but it, but that additional tipping point, that additional nudge, is is the thing that I think you look at with celebrity quite often. And it's different with campaigns because campaigns you need the immediate attention, but the endorsement side, which is the kind of um, chiseling away at behaviour, and actually, can I get someone to buy this instead of this, and that kind of back to the challenger and disruptor. Although yeah. I think that there's less loyalty now that we see because advertising yeah. has taken the journey that it's taken. There's less of that kind of conformity to the brand. I think women at a vulnerable point of buying nappies, probably one of the significant ones because there's a, a safety in that because you don't know necessarily mm. as a first time mm. mum what you're doing. Absolutely. But I speak for myself. No, I, have a really <laughs> um, good, I have a great uh, quote uh, from David Ogilvy about that actually. Um, you mentioned Ogilvy before, Andrew, which is mm. pe people don't, uh, think what they feel say what they think or do what they say and and whilst that might not broad you know be totally true all the time actually if that is at the crux of how people sort of make decisions we're not we're not totally rational whenever we make all of our decisions we, we are we absolutely are not rational and that's the interesting thing is that we know there's there is we talk about the biases or influential marketing mm. and authority bias is is definitely one and that we see george clooney and, and nespresso and i think it'd be hugely influential but if you ask people rationally how we how how much credence do you put around george clooney drinking espresso to you buying an espresso you, you'll say to chloe's point not much it's absolutely not true at all mm. and that's that whole subliminal um and um emotional response to things that provide you with um sometimes a reassurance sometimes that that pat on the back that that but it's it but uh, you know and post rationalization of a, of, a, of, a, of an emotional decision making process and it contributes in a way but i think and, and and you know but people won't necessarily acknowledge it and that's why one has to be very very careful about the extent which research mm. it can influence product development, service development, feature development, because people can't tell you um, functionally what they haven't experienced, what they haven't got. And even then they won't tell you the truth as to mm. why something they have experienced, because generally people want to please. And they'll say, oh, yes, it was very nice. Um, I would like it in pink, blue, orange, and yellow, knowing full well that 90% of sales will be in black. Yeah, and and it's about understanding what people, you know, we're we're. I heard someone say we're a rationalising species, not a rational species, in as much as we we make emotional decisions and then we post rationalise them afterwards. Yeah. Uh, and I think that sort of leads us to an interesting point, which is this is this show is about behavioural science first and foremost, but actually from a from a public health particular, we, we do it on behalf of the behavioural science and public health network. So from a public health or a health more generally perspective, that's an interesting segue to um, trying to help people to change quite ingrained behaviours. Often we're trying to, you know, uh, the, the history of marketing in, in health has been pretty poor, let's, let's be honest. And, and it's always because we're focused on giving people information in a very rational way and trying to sort of give them information that that's that says basically if you if you know this then you can act in this way and you know this that and the other you, you should you should make a change so why 
what, where can we learn from marketing and PR that we obviously haven't done quite yet? Isn't it um, somewhat ironic that you think of um, the most famous song, perhaps, about medicine is about um, a spoonful of sugar, mm. and yet there's no sugar <laughs> yeah. coating of any of the medicine or any of the no. healthcare stuff. <laughs> no. Maybe it's out there already that there's a there's a degree of making it um, of sugar coating is the wrong term, but you get my point. We should, we should study Mary Poppins, is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and all Disney films. Everyone. <laughs> yeah. Um, but but I think there is a part of it which is. And we've certainly looked at this over and over with campaigning where it's very, um, you know, it's, sometimes it's very hardcore. We've recently done some work on domestic violence campaigning through lockdown, which is really, you know, significantly linked, obviously, also to mental health, to, um, mm. to um, different um, personal situations of, of different individuals um, and has taken a huge rise uh, during this incredibly stressful time and that's stuff which is you know it hard hitting and the stories are terrifying and heartbreaking and um you know things that people want to look away from and how do you get people to look at and engage with things that that naturally you want to turn away from and some of that is about simplifying messaging it's about who delivers the messaging it's about what the action is so that it's bite-sized so it doesn't overwhelm people yeah. and all of those things that you put into place with something that's huge but that needs to be dealt with are the same things that I would say in this situation you know they're, they're things that you need people to um to engage with and so you need to look at what how people engage with other things and I think you know we work a lot with celebrity because as I said before we we find that a, a, a tap into an audience a pre-made audience but also we tend to work with ambassador programs we set up ambassador programs for, for many different campaigns and organizations and brands etc but that's again to do with not putting everything on one person not allowing it to become subjective but to create a collective and that collective is reflective of the audiences that we're speaking to or that we're engaging with and the values that they hold don't sit solely on the shoulders of a Kardashian but they sit across many different individuals and the values that people choose to take from from those individuals so I think that there's something in that peer to not peer-to-peer celebrity to celebrity but more you know somebody that you respect and you admire saying that they are doing something or helping you with something mm. I, I think it's an interesting one isn't it I would agree with you there Chloe and, and and if you think about historically we talked about public information films public information and the, the whole thing is that yes here's the authority giving you some information that you really didn't know and and uh, this will now help you do something. So, um, uh, sorry, Andrew. Like, what, what do you have an example? Smoking, of? smoking. Oh, okay, uh, right, fine. Uh, HIV. Um, okay. You know, and so that those were, um, and the, the thing is, is that shock horror. We didn't know this. I've communicated it. Well, the problem, the fact is, is most people often do know. Mm. You know for you could say for the the one of the longest period of time has been smoking. You know, they've known for fifty years that it causes lung cancer and all sorts of different things um but keeping saying you know the thing is is that keeping saying the same thing either with greater frequency or greater volume doesn't change people's response to it mm. and so therefore we have to think about things in a more nuanced way and this is why i think behavioral economics um and nudge theory actually has had some success and why i talk about smoking is that and you talk about the greatest influence around stopping smoking for an individual or as an adult is probably your child. And I think where we've seen greatest, um, I would say, connection would be when you see um, your child telling you, don't smoke, Dad. I'd like you to play football with me and be around to play football with me. You know, that the whole, the whole thing is that is about emotion in that way, that it's often it's not about. There is, there is a, certainly in this age now, there is more information than you could ever know in the public domain and available via the Internet. So we've really got to think about people and policy 
and setting an example. And without getting political, the, the issue around lockdown is mm. more about example than communication. Yeah, I think smoking is a really good example of um, the need for a, a sort of multifaceted approach. Because so that's a health intervention at the end of the day. And it was, uh, I was just looking it up there, but it was about the, the 50s that um, Dolan Hill produced their first study on smoking uh, and, you know, inconclusively, sorry, um, conclusively linking it to, to, to cancer. And it took something like 60 years for it to actually get to the point where we're now about, I, I mean, smoking people are probably going to, Lambasme, I think it's 12 to 15, I think it's 15% of the population, something like that in the UK. But at one point it was 80%. You know, that's a lot of people in the UK. And it was a combination of things like, you know, going into sports and being banned from being advertised on, on F1 cars, for example, which were a big place for, um, you know, those classic F1 cars with Marlboro all over the back and all that type of stuff, uh, as well as, you know, legal um, issues and um, public opinion. So from that perspective, there were lots of different ways that the, that the government and and uh, as the government sort of made a bigger deal of it, the people started to gradually sort of get on board with the idea that smoking um, probably should go by the wayside. And it was then the um, banning in pubs, which they obviously tested in Scotland first because they always do. Um, but the banning of smoking in pubs that ended up having one of the biggest impacts on um, people's smoking behaviours because of its link with alcohol uh, and, and sociability. So it, it's... I mean, if we took obesity as an example, sorry, Chloe, what were you going to say? Well, I was just going to say, it's also, um, going back to Andrew's point about the, the the nudging and the, you know, really you're coming in to solve something and, mm. the, and what it's been set up to do is make something very cool, um, make something, you know, it's what rock stars are doing it's i think we touched on it before you know the mm. adam curtis century of self you know having the women suffragettes with their red lipstick and their cigarettes kind of you know mm-hmm. was it torches of torches of freedom um i haven't so, heard that is that know, what like they said that whole, about suffragettes was that they they had their kind of their cigarettes in their hand as they marched down right, um, right. The, the streets of new york but i think if you're if if something is set up in that way you know, you could say the same with alcohol. You could say, you know, you're you're getting it from every direction. It was every, you know, mm. movie star in the fifties. It was every, you know, there all the kind of different ways again that we are exposed to these things. Those become your shorthand. Those become the things that you go to quickly yeah. without having to take a, a, a thought process. You've got a shorthand already. To this is a cool thing. You have to then go on a whole journey to go, oh, and this is a person I've never met who's in hospital dying, or yeah. this is someone who may have been also exposed to, you know, all these car fumes or, you know, all of the other things and other bits of information that are coming at you. So mm. so really the job that's then being done by the health service is, is looking at how do we counter with not as much budget or as much fame or as much kind of... Um, glamour in a in a way in that sense yeah to to combat that because this is the place that people want to be they want to be in the kind of you know i'm sitting in you know some lovely place smoking my cigarette and having my glass of wine and looking great and you know having a wonderful life not yeah, in my yeah. jaguar yes and then you know yeah i think that's i think that's absolutely right and the interesting thing is is that you know the, what sprung to mind is that you know advertising and communication um it was generally one step ahead and created a shorthand. Marlborough Man, you just needed to show Marlborough Man. And that was it. Uh, the whole, mm. you know, John Wayne, the Great West, United States, the whole lot. And the interesting thing is that you, you know, you're right. It's always hard to combat a very simple expression with, no, no, that's not true because, or here's the, all the rational. You're getting into the whole that rational stuff. The biggest challenge, I think, for the health industry now is that how do we nudge people to um, eat less? Is obesity is the is we've seen and um, is a huge issue. And how long is it going to take? Because we know the obesity and the impact around COVID, um, around food, but you know all those sorts mm-hmm. of things. Or eating the type two diabetes, the health service, and you know the interesting thing is is that. The only thing people don't realize from a rational, functional perspective 
is is how many calories day to day. Everybody knows, you know, input, output, you know, and this is the reality of why most people are overweight is because they put take on more calories than they expend. So all we, that's all we got to fix. Now, functionally, rationally, it's the simplest message in the world. Now, how are we going to mm. approach that? Are we going to I'm, hope, I'm, ho- I'm hoping you have an answer for that as well. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> you're not my business. Yeah, well. Yes, but you have to pay me for that, though. That's oh. <laughs> well, I will. I, I will do that offline if you can. No, tell me, Andrew, uh, if you can solve I, that. But I think, but you know, it, but it is, you know, it, I think that's where I think is probably the the biggest behavioral economic challenge of our time is to get people to take a lower calorific input than they actually expend on a day-by-day basis. Maybe there's a maybe there's a product in there I can show you at any one point in time. You know, all these, you know, we talk about the beauty of the Apple Watch or the Fitbit. It's very simple. All it needs is a green plus or a red minus. And at any one point in time, am I in calorific debt or calorific excess? There you are. Well, that, I mean, obviously that exists through things like my fitness pal and other types of... Oh, of no, that's but, hard work. That. <laughs> that's just what I was going to say. Just give me plus or minus <laughs> on my wrist. That's all I need. Yeah. Yes. So it needs to be something that is automatically scanning what you're eating calorifically. Uh, yes. Well, yeah, I, I think if someone's working those. on that... The technology's there. I yes. Well, uh, let's hope it is because I think the, I think you're right. And from a government perspective as well, um, you know, having worked in in public health England uh, in the obesity team, I know, I know that they're focusing on this sort of notion of a um, whole systems approach. So thinking through not just individual choice, but also all of the environmental factors that impact our, our choices. Ta- lo- you know, the local takeaways. It's no coincidence that people are twice as likely to be obese if they live in the least, um, sorry, the most deprived areas versus the the most affluent areas. So uh, there's a big big push around sort of you know bringing all of the elements that they did for smoking actually you know in terms of public opinion as well as structural things like legal um, recourse oh, yeah, and, and not just, yeah, yeah of course yeah yeah so all of that's going on um but it could be accelerated and i'm keen to continue a conversation um from a marketing perspective i think one of the one of the things that we should really look for is there's a great book by um, uh, Matthew Said called Rebel Ideas, which is about bringing um, bringing together diverse groups of people so that you don't share blind spots. And I think this is one of the things that we're really focused on, for example, at Busybodies, is bringing people like you guys, for example, together, um, and also a range of other different career you know career paths and, and industries where. You do something right really, really well, you know, in, in both marketing, PR and all that. They, they, they're doing things that are, are working incredibly. The question is, do they know, you know, I think when, when health try to sort of get involved in it, they're trying to apply the behavioral science, which is obviously the side that, that I'm on. But I feel like I really want to sort of absorb as much marketing uh, as possible because either we know why it works and we should use it knowing, or we don't know why it works, but it works. So we should still be using it um, to try and influence people for the, for the better. Well, this, on, industry, this industry, we've been in the, you know, the whole, the whole, if you think the last hundred years, 150 years, the whole industry is built upon influence. It's all about built upon persuasion and it's all about, encouraging people to maybe do something different and do more of it or keep coming back and doing it again. Mm. Um, and I think what's, what is, what is, what is consistent through all of that is simplicity. Now, simplicity, whether it was, um, uh, pre preordained, predefined, or, uh, it, it kind of, well, it, it's sort of, we found that it worked is that, keeping things really simple in a world of, of complexity change uh, and busyness is key. And often, and that's why a nudge, a nudge is supposedly is a small act, a small degree of force that is akin to simplicity, I suppose, in, in, in many respects. But that's what we need to be thinking about. And huge policy papers or... You know, yes, taking a systems approach, but look at the systems approach as an aggregation of a whole series of small influences 
mm. taking a 360 degree degree view on a problem so that we all play a part yeah. you know as we said you can go back without dwelling on on obesity if you think about obesity the last thing you want to involve as part of that solution is the diet industry was because the diet industry, taking Chloe's point about diet industry, is not an NGO that's looking to um, uh, make sure that it is redundant in in five or ten years. You know, the diet industry is completely consumed with ensuring that you don't create sustainable weight loss. Yes, well, I mean, for for the people that are listening from the diet industry, who I know we do have are listening, uh, mm-hmm. there are greater and lesser degrees of that. But I, I'm not going to shy away from the fact that that, in some cases, is certainly true, um, Andrew. And I think that's a good note for us to sort of end on, really, um, on on simplicity. And also from you know what you're saying there is like the, the Dave Brailsford's uh, marginal gains approach there of the whole systems approach. Um, but but I I just wanted to say thanks to you both uh, for a really interesting show and i know this one will be different to what everyone you know what all the other guests we've had on in the past where uh you know and and for our listeners i hope this actually does that job that i mentioned about bringing some diversity to to the conversation here around behavioral science and how to sort of change people's lives for good which is the the sort of mantra of the show if you like um but just in case people want to get hold of you and look a little bit more about what what you've what you've done and what you're working on at the moment where could they get hold of you chloe um are you on twitter and all the other social Um, medias that i'm sure you're on yeah, although I came off Twitter for some time and I came off Facebook. Okay, <laughs> well, fair enough. <laughs> the least accessible PR person out there. Um, <laughs> but I do, I've, I'm on Instagram as Chloe Francis and um, we have a website which is francis.co, uh, Francis with F-R-A-N-S-E-S. Yes, yeah, great. Thanks, Chloe. And what about you, Andrew? Um, I think, uh, again, to take the, the theme of social media, it would be LinkedIn for me. Um, I'm the 22nd. Oh, yes. I'm the 22nd most important Andrew Thomas on LinkedIn. Um, not really. There is a, if you go on LinkedIn, you'll see the significance of 22, but Andrew Thomas 22, you'll find me on LinkedIn. So I'm uh, happy to connect and help. Great stuff. Guys, thanks so much for coming on today. I really appreciate it. And um, we'll, we'll, uh, I'm sure that we'll hear from our listeners on what they think. Be good to hear. Yeah, thanks, Stu. Thank you so much, Stu. Just want to say thanks again to Chloe and Andrew there for a great show. I'm sure you'll agree, having listened to it, that it's it's really important for us to get out of our immediate environment and industries and to learn from what works elsewhere and particularly in marketing because we know obviously that has had a huge impact uh, for better or worse on uh, various aspects of our daily lives so um, thank again to um, Chloe and Andrew uh, who I think provided some really interesting perspectives on the importance of celebrity and corporate social responsibility in marketing uh, how identity plays uh, a part in in you know how we how we encourage people to act in certain ways whether that's um, from a health perspective or just in a general marketing perspective Um, but I think um, this gives us a good example of why it's important that we don't just focus on uh, our individual industries so I just wanted to remind listeners that we are recording this show on behalf of the Behavioural Science and Public Health Network, um, which one of the benefits of joining is actually coming up. And so I'm going to tell you about our annual conference, which is taking place uh, between the 9th and 11th of February 2021. And the theme is reflecting on public health and behavioural science responses to COVID-19. Um, you can find details on the BSPHM website, but this time is an especially great time to join because the event is actually free for members. £10 for students who are not members and £25 for people who are working but not members. But crucially, this comes with a year's free membership. So I'm calling this out because you're an informed audience, but there's some behavioural economics here going on in the form of um, a decoy effect because this is actually the fee you'd normally pay for a membership for the year anyway. So the benefit is that the CPD for you and it's something that your your employer can pay for because uh, you get your free membership within the, the price of your ticket. Uh, and if they support CPD, this is pretty cheap CPD at £25. So uh, head on over to bsphn.org.uk to sign up now. We're also asking for abstract submissions for our COVID-19 case study session on Tuesday the 9th of February and this is open until Monday the 7th of December. So that is pretty close to the date that this will be released but please do head on over to um, the BSPHN website for more details or you can just send a 250 word max 
um, abstract to events at bsphn.org.uk. You can sign up to my blog at www.busybodies.com forward slash blog for my views on public health, behaviour change and running a company with the express aim of doing meaningful work and having fun whilst doing it. I hope you have a really interesting December planned as we come out of the lockdown period. As a little challenge, why not see what you can do on each of the days of Advent to to perk someone's day up and uh, give them a moment of joy in the uh, month of December. Um, If you enjoyed this podcast, please do go to iTunes or whichever podcast provider you listen to this on because it really does help actually give people information about whether or not to spend their time listening to the show. So if you like it, please do share it with people and please do go and leave a review. Also, if you want to get in touch with me, I'm on at Stu underscore King underscore HH on Twitter and you can find me on LinkedIn and I look forward to hearing from you. In the meantime, I hope you have a great December, a great Christmas, uh, and that you look after each other and yourselves. And most of all, wash your hands. (laughs) 